Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray, shall we? Let's ask for God's help. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for your word, for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this great promise that your word never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. We pray and ask God that your Holy Spirit would work today to challenge, to encourage us in our faith, to pray, to intercede. We pray and ask God that as we study your word today, you would be held in awe by us and that you'd be glorified. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, A week ago on Sunday, I got... um, a message from Mission Eurasia from my friend Pavel, who is a pastor in Moscow in Russia. And I want to read a part of his letter this morning. This is what Pavel writes. Two weeks ago, Russia was shaken when President Putin announced mobilization for the war. And that news plunged the entire country of Russia into chaos. Literally overnight, we found ourselves in a situation that forced us to make a critical decision. The announcement about mobilization forced our family, including our middle daughter Tamara and myself, to make a very hard choice. Either we would go to war against the people of Ukraine, whom we love, my wife Ina is from Ukraine and her entire family is still there, or we would go to jail for at least 10 years for refusing to serve in the army. They spent uh, that night praying and seeking guidance from the Lord. In the morning, they felt like they received their answer with the help of Sergei um, and his characteristic persuasion, if you know Sergei. They decided to leave the country. Uh, Pavel was able to get a flight out of the country to a Middle Eastern country because at that time, Uh, The Russian government hadn't yet started stopping flights for men of military age. His um, daughter, Tamara, also left Russia, but due to the long lines uh, attempting to cross the border, she had to cross on foot, walking over the North Caucasus Mountains to Georgia. It took her 56 hours to do that. And there was a team from Mission Eurasia that met her uh, there in Georgia and then helped her on her way from there. And then within a few days, their whole family was reunited in uh, Chesnia, Moldova. Praise God. But they are yet another family that has been deeply impacted and displaced from their home, from their belongings. Pavel um, is going to continue to work with Mission Eurasia. He'll be overseeing their um, refugee assistance center there in Moldova. He'll be looking over uh, the School Without Walls programs and doing various other projects, ministry projects around the region, as well as getting involved in ministry in the local church. As you can imagine, with all these refugees coming into Moldova, there is just a ton of ministry that needs to be done. He shared some prayer requests with me this week. to pray for support for our family during this time of huge change for us. Pray that God would give us wisdom to make choices and to help us adapt to new life here. Pray that our girls will be able to find work. 
adult children, find work and make new Christian friends. They had to leave their home quickly, he says, so we could only bring the most essential things. So they need all of the basics, including a place to live, an apartment. Uh, They also need the legal documents in order to live there for a longer period of time and pray for the ministry. He says this, We are grateful that God moved us to a new place and that we can serve in ministry, especially to Ukrainians, so they can hear the message of the gospel and find hope in Jesus during these turbulent times. It's not uncommon. This is, you have refugees ministering to refugees. Imagine having to leave your home on short notice and only being able to take what you can carry with you and having to leave everything else behind. Start over. That's not just his family, that's tens of thousands of families at this point. I share this story this morning because I I want you to pray for Pavel and his family. I also share it because I want you to continue to pray for the war in Ukraine and all of the people who have been displaced there and for all the ministry that is happening there. I also share it because our text today centers in on prayer, intercessory prayer, the power of prayer, God's mercy in response to our prayer. That's what we're going to see today. Now, kids, I'm going to be using this word, intercede, today, and I want to define that up front so that you know what it means when I use it or when you hear it. As it relates to prayer, the word intercede just means praying to God for other people or on behalf of others. So Moses prays to God for Israel. He intercedes for them. That's called intercessory prayer. So when you hear me say that, it means praying to God on behalf of others, praying to God for other people. That's intercessory prayer. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 9. We are going to be looking at chapter 9, verse 7 through chapter 10, verse 11 this morning. Moses has been driving home this point that God is not giving Israel the promised land because of their own righteousness. On the contrary, Moses says, from the day that you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, they're in the plains of Moab on the edge of the promised land, he said, that whole time you've been rebellious against the Lord. They're continually provoking the Lord to anger this whole time. Now his primary example that he uses of this is their rebellion at Mount Sinai when they worshipped the golden calf and were nearly destroyed. He wants to drive home this point that the promised land is a gift of sheer grace. They would be destroyed if it had not been for his intercessory prayer for God's mercy. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Now these things happened to them, referring generally to the things that happened in the Old Testament, as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. Our goal for us this morning is to learn from Moses' example of intercessory prayer. And so the point for us, the message is to intercede in prayer for God's mercy on behalf of others. That's the, that's the message. We're going to review the story, we'll examine Moses' prayer, we'll see how God answers, and we'll draw application as we go. So first, Moses retells one of Israel's greatest sins, the golden calf. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 7 through 24. Moses tells them several times, the Lord was so angry with you, he was ready to destroy you. That's verse 8. In fact, he says that five times in our text. 
Verse 8, verse 14, verse 19, verse 20, verse 25. Again and again and again. God's going to destroy you. He's ready to destroy you. You're about to be destroyed, etc. But what happened? Why was God so angry? I think most of you remember the story, right? Moses goes up on the mountain in Horeb. That's Mount Sinai. He goes up there to get the tablets of the covenant from God. God writes on them the Ten Commandments, everything, all the words that he spoke to them out of the fire, verse 10. While God was giving the tablets of the covenant, verse 11, down in the valley, if this was a movie, it's like, meanwhile, down in the valley, uh, Israel, God's people, are worshiping a golden calf, the golden calf Aaron made. So God says to Moses in verse 12, arise, go quickly from here for your people, your people, notice this, your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a metal image. Now in Exodus, we learn that they worshiped it, and Aaron said, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. So they're breaking the first, second, and third commandments at the same time. They made an image of God. They're taking up God's name in vain in their worship, and they've seemed to added other gods into the mix. The point is this. Israel broke the covenant with God on the same day that it was being made. I loved Jonathan's, Pastor Jonathan's illustration last week. He said that'd be like cheating on your spouse on your wedding day. Brutal. And we see the first sign of how serious this is in verse 12 when God says to Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. It's similar to what God says in Hosea when he calls Israel, not my people. He's disowning them. These aren't my people, Moses. These are your people. This is a horrible situation. Then God says in verses 13 and 14, I've seen this people and behold, it's a stubborn people. It's a stiff-necked people. They're They're rebellious and they won't change. They're contrary to God. They disobey him and they won't change. They're stubborn. He says, let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I'll make you a nation mightier and greater than they. God threatens to destroy them and start over with Moses. And this is showing us the gravity of their sin. Moses goes down, when he sees them worshiping the golden calf, he takes the tablets of the covenant and he smashes them, verse 15, verse 17. He didn't accidentally drop them. He he deliberately did this. He deliberately throws them down and, and breaks them. Three times we're told, he calls them the tablets of the covenant, verse 9, verse 11, verse 15. Breaking them is a deliberate action that symbolized that Israel has broken the covenant. This golden calf incident was an airtight example of of Israel's wickedness to prove that God is not giving them the promised land because of their righteousness. Far from it. God was ready to destroy them. So there could be no argument that they deserved the land as a reward for righteousness. Just as we can never make a case that we deserve heaven for our righteousness. Heaven, the ultimate promised land, is only a gift of God's grace. It's a gift received by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, even under judgment, threat of judgment, God gives some indication that he's going to show grace and mercy in verses 12 through 14. First of all, why send Moses down to see the corruption in the first place? 
I mean, if God wanted to, he could have just immediately destroyed them. Why should he send Moses down? Because he's planning to save them through his intercession as their mediator. Then there's a hint of mercy in verse 14, although it's not maybe easy to see or readily apparent to us. Look at verse 14. God says, let me alone so that I may destroy them. Now, God didn't need to say that. He didn't need to say anything at all to Moses. Why does God involve Moses? When God says, let me alone, don't misread that as if God is sulking. God is saying, if you do nothing, if you leave me alone, then I will destroy them. God is inviting Moses to intercede here. God's encouraging him to stand in the gap for his people, to intercede in prayer on their behalf. Jerome wrote this, Consider the compassionate kindness of God when he says, let me alone. He shows that if Moses will continue to importune him, to prevail on him in prayer, then he will not strike. In other words, what does he say? Do not cease your persistent entreaty, and I shall not strike. So already we see God's grace is ready to unfold in response to Moses' prayer, and that's exactly what he does in verses 18 and 19. Instead of leaving God alone, Moses begs for God's mercy. He fasts and he prays before the Lord for 40 days and nights because of their sin, verse 18, because I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord, which he bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you, verse 18. Then we learn something here in Deuteronomy that we don't learn in Exodus. We learn that Moses actually prays for Aaron as well. That's not mentioned in Exodus, but it's mentioned here in verse 20. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at that time, verse 20. Why does Moses bring that up in this context? Moses highlights this detail to drive home the lack of their righteousness. If, if even Israel's high priest had to be snatched from judgment by Moses' intercession, then what possible claim could they make of their own righteousness? They were all alike in need of God's mercy. And so are we. Now, this isn't the first time that Moses' prayers saved Israel, and it will not be the last time that Moses' prayers save them. Moses gives some other examples of their rebellion in verses 22 to 24. It wasn't just this incident, incident that, that Israel provoked God to anger. They did it again and again. In fact, Moses says in verse 24, you've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And in every case, it was because they failed to believe God and therefore they failed to obey God. The point is, Israel has no righteousness before the Lord. They owed their salvation and preservation with all of the blessings of this covenant totally, completely, to God's grace, mercy, faithfulness. So let me make some applications related to prayer here before we move on. First of all, this was a test of Moses' character. God offered to start over with him. The Israelites deserved to be punished. The Israelites had been a thorn in his flesh. They'd been a constant nuisance, a constant source of grief for Moses this whole time, and they would continue to be. And given the burden of their continual rebellion, we might understand if Moses momentarily entertained this offer. Like, ah, maybe I will do this. This sounds pretty good. Just like Galadriel when Frodo offers her the ring of power, Moses passed the test. 
Moses let go of the opportunity to make a name for himself. We'll come back to that later. Instead, he prayed for this people who had so grieved him. He didn't let the pain that they caused him cause him to close his heart toward them and keep him from praying for them. Don't let the pain harden your heart and keep you from praying for people who have hurt you. Second, it was their need that drove him to pray. God was going to destroy them, so he lay prostrate, pleading with the Lord to be merciful. It is those who most clearly see their need who are most constant in prayer. You pray about the things that you trust the Lord with, that you know you can't do for yourself. But what things can you do on your own without the help of the Lord? Nothing. Every need that you have, great or small, is an opportunity for you to pray, not just for yourself, but to intercede on behalf of other people. Third, God invites, he welcomes, he even commands intercessory prayer, especially when we've sinned and aroused his anger or displeasure. He wants us to come to him in prayer. We're commanded to intercede in prayer for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. 1 Timothy chapter, one, or chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So pray for your spouse, pray for your kids, pray for your fellow believers, pray for the church, pray for the church here, pray for the church around the world, pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, pray for the nation. Our nation is under God's judgment right now, and we need intercessory prayer. Who do you need to stand in the gap for? Psalm 106, 23 says this, it says, therefore God said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath. From destroying him. My auntie Linda and Uncle Merle, they prayed for my family for decades. Decades. They were God's chosen servants who stood in the breach before God to turn away his wrath from me and my parents and my brother. Who are you standing in the gap for? All that it would be said of us, we stood in the gap. That our children, our spouses, our friends would say of us, man, he stood, she stood in the gap for me. Second, Moses prays to God on behalf of Israel. We see this in verses 25 through 29. This is the content of his prayer, now at least the essential features of it. And we want to ask the questions here, what can we learn from his example? If not for Moses' prayer God's, and God's mercy, Israel would have perished at Horeb, at Sinai. It teaches us right off the bat that prayer is powerful. So we see the essential features here. Verse 25, so I lay prostrate before the Lord. What does that mean? That means lying on your face on the ground before God for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. His prayer is humble, persistent, and fervent. He's on his face in humble submission to God. He prays 40 days and 40 nights. He is persistent. This is prevailing prayer. He is fervent. He's pleading with God to show his mercy. This isn't the prayer of someone who doesn't really care if his prayers are answered. He is serious. He is sincere. John Bunyan said in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than to have words without heart. We need to be in earnest when we pray. And this is all his manner of prayer. How did he go about this? 
But we also see that his prayer was bold because he's attempting in humility to turn aside the righteous wrath of God. Verse 26 says, And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your heritage. The goal of his prayer is to turn aside God's judgment for their wickedness. Again, instead of leaving God alone, he pleads for mercy. I want you to notice what Moses did not do in his prayer. He did not minimize their sin. He did not make excuses for their sin. He did not appeal to their own merit and say, you should answer me because of all the good things that they've done. He did not argue that God's judgment was unfair. Moses was not praying for the innocent, but for the guilty. He's pleading with God to save sinners, to save the ungodly, the unrighteous, the undeserving. We can learn a lot just by noticing what Moses does not pray. So what does Moses appeal to? What is the basis of his of his prayer, he prays based on four things, God's redemption, God's promise, God's mercy, and God's reputation. I'm going to show you these four things. These are God's people, first of all, that God redeemed. Verse 26, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You remember Moses, Remember God says to Moses, hey, these are your people who you brought out, verse 12. Now Moses says, no God, these are your people who you brought out. They're your inheritance, your heritage, your treasured possession, your children, God relates to his people as a father. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 5. They're his chosen, his redeemed, his beloved. God was always reminding the Israelites of all that he had done to save them. God is saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Exodus 20, 20. Now Moses is reminding God of what he was always telling them. He's praying according to God's word. Now Moses prays, based on God's covenant promise. Verse 27, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God couldn't abandon the covenant with Abraham and start over with Moses, verse 14, without breaking his oath. So in Exodus 32, Moses reminds God, these are his people, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He's praying based on God's covenant promises, which God could not break. We can prove false with our word, but God never proves false with his word. He's always faithful. This is why praying God's promises is so powerful. God always keeps his word. That on the basis of God's faithfulness, whoops, uh, he prays, For God's forgiveness. Look at the rest of verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people, or their wickedness, or their sin. In other words, don't hold their sin against them, but forgive them. He's appealing to God's mercy here. God's wrath was fully deserved, and Moses couldn't deny that. But what he could do was ask God to turn aside his wrath and to show mercy. God's mercy is always undeserved. It's central to his character. So when we're in sin, the thing to do is to cry out for God's mercy like Moses did for Israel and ask God to forgive us. 
God's mercy then is connected to God's name. Moses prays on the basis of God's reputation. Look what he says. He says, don't don't regard the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness or their sin. Why? Verse 28, lest the land from which you brought us, that's Egypt, lest Egypt say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Notice this. Moses has an opportunity to make a name for himself. But instead of choosing to make a name for himself, Moses is concerned for God's name. God's glory was best served by sparing God's people, not by starting over with him. He prays that God would forgive them and show mercy to them, not just for their sake, but for the sake of God's name. God can't blot out their name without damaging his own. Moses wanted to see God exalted among the nations, especially Egypt. God redeemed them so that they would see his glory. God said, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord, Exodus 14.4. But if Egypt heard that God destroyed Israel, they would conclude God was incapable of fulfilling his promise, and he hated them. God brought them out because he hated them. But God's not incapable. He's all-powerful. He's almighty. And God doesn't hate them. He chose to save Israel purely because of his love. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. So it was God's almighty power and God's divine love that saved them. So Moses is praying that God would protect his name, his reputation. Moses pleaded for God's mercy because he was passionate about God's glory. There needs to be a desire for God's glory in our prayer. We must pray for what will most glorify God in the answer. Pray for what will most glorify God in the answer. We need to learn to intercede like Moses. This is an example for our instruction. His prayer is characterized by humility, persistence, fervency, boldness, and self-denial. Does that describe your prayer life? I confess, I fall far short of that. But I want to grow. Amen? So let's ask God to teach us to pray this way. Let's ask God to give us the ability to pray this way. Moses' prayer is based on God's word, it's dependent on God's character, and its goal is God's glory. It shares a lot of similarities with the Lord's prayer. I'm not going to unpack that, but look at that later for yourself. When you pray for others, pray this way. Finally, God answers Moses' prayer with great mercy. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And this is going to put us in awe, or it should put us in awe of God and encourage us to pray. That's the application for us. The chapter division here is unfortunate because it gives us the impression that these verses are unrelated, but they go together. And we know that because in verse 10, Moses concludes saying, the Lord listened to me. So in these verses, Moses gives a condensed summary of their history to show how God answered his prayers. In verses 1 through 5, God renews the covenant with his people. The tablets of the covenant are replaced with new ones that are identical to the first. Verse 1, 
God wrote the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments, verse 4. Then Moses puts them in the ark, verse 5. So just like the breaking of those tablets were symbolic of breaking the covenant, the giving of these new tablets is a picture of the covenant being restored. The people listening to Moses at the time on the plains of Moab, these people were living proof of the fact that God didn't destroy his people. They're alive today because of God's mercy. They're living proof. God in his mercy forgave them. They were reconciled to God in response to Moses' prayer. Then in verses 6 through 9, God restores Aaron and the priesthood. In verse 6, Moses mentions that Aaron died at Masra, which must have been near Mount Hor. This was 40 years after the golden calf incident. Why, why does he put this detail here? Because he just said, I had to pray for Aaron because God was going to destroy him. And here's the answer. He didn't die for 40 years, right? His prayer was answered. Not only did God allow him to live, he allowed him to continue to, to minister as high priest. And then that ministry was passed on to his son, Eliezer. Verse 8, at that time, not the time when Aaron died, but the, this time in general that he's talking about here at Sinai, the Lord set apart the Levites because of their zeal to carry the ark of the Lord, to stand before the Lord and minister to him, and to bless in his name. Not to bless his name, but to bless the people in his name. So this ministry of the Levites, they're, they're responsible for the sanctuary, they're offering the sacrifices, they're taking care of the covenant with the tablets inside of it, they're blessing God's people in the name of the Lord. Their ministry, this priesthood, is what enables a sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. They need this for God to go with them and to be with them in their midst. So God answers Moses' prayers. And then he concludes in verses 10 and 11. I myself stayed on the mountain at the, as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you, and the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I should have looked at the depth of God's mercy here. They're this close to being totally wiped out. And they deserved to be wiped out. And God was merciful to them. And this should cause us to step back in awe. We should be blown away by God's gracious salvation in light of their sin. We should be blown away by God's faithfulness to them. We should be blown away just as much by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper is similar to this covenant renewal. In it, we renew our relationship with God, and that should lead us to awe and assurance because, God's, because of God's grace and mercy. God did everything that was required in order to reestablish relationship and to restore Israel as his people. So it is with us when we confess and repent and seek his forgiveness. God restores us to right relationship with him so that we can go on in our journey with the Lord. We can walk in communion with Him. God assures them that He's going to go with them and bring them into the land just like He promised. He assures us with a similar promise to complete the work that He began in us and to see us home to heaven. Philippians 1.6, John 6, 38-40. 
So Moses' prayers were answered. The people are not destroyed. The covenant with God remained only by the grace of God. Now, there is some mystery as it relates to prayer. There's nothing to suggest in this text that God is not serious. Moses took God's word with the utmost seriousness. That much is clear. He recognized the threat was real and he needed to pray. But notice this. God in his sovereignty uses means to accomplish his will. And prayer is one of those means. Prayer is an integral part of how God chooses to accomplish his plans and purpose in history. God not only allows us to intercede in prayer, he invites it and he commands it because he has built our prayers into his plans for the world in ways that we can't totally comprehend. But that means your prayers are an essential part of God's mission on earth. His work in the world. Your, your prayers. That's amazing. That's so incredible. It should blow our minds. It should fill us with awe. We should be filled with awe, not just by God's mercy, but also that God would deign to use our prayers to accomplish His purposes in the world. That ought to encourage you to pray. And that should make you go, I want in. It's so incredible. Because we might think, well, if God is sovereign, then our prayers don't really matter. But what we see here is that they do matter. Prayer is powerful. As James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its effects. We see this again and again in the Bible. Abraham, Samuel, Elijah, Daniel, the New Testament Christians, and we could add a whole bunch of others to the list. Let this encourage you to pray persistently. Let it encourage you to come boldly and with confidence before the throne of God. Spurgeon said this, Prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. God's mercy and God's answer to prayer should leave us in awe of God and encourage us to pray. Let me conclude with this. Moses was Israel's leader. He was their mediator between them and God, their intercessor, and even the one who suffered because of Israel's sin. We saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Jesus is the better mediator, the better Moses, the better mediator between God and man. He steps into the gap like Moses and intercedes on our behalf, averting God's wrath for our sin. We're tempted to read this story, I think, and say, oh, those Israelites, how could they be so foolish? How could they be so sinful? But this is really our story, isn't it? Isn't this us? Like the Israelites, we're rebellious and sinful. We worship idols instead of God. We deserve God's wrath for our sins. We need 
a mediator. We need someone like Moses to intercede for us, someone to stand in the gap between us and God, someone to turn aside God's wrath so that we could be forgiven and have restored relationship with God. That's what Jesus Christ has done. That is the message of the gospel. Jesus is the one perfect mediator between God and man. He stepped into the gap. He took the wrath of God on himself. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead. He conquered death. Now he sits enthroned at the right hand of God. And he always lives to make intercession for us. To pray for us. Jesus is our great high priest. And unlike Aaron, he doesn't need a replacement. He holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost, completely, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 23 to 25. Amen? Amen. Come to him and be forgiven. Confess your sins. Ask God to forgive you. Throw yourself on the mercy of God like Moses did. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Just like the Israelites were not given the land because of their righteousness, we do not enter heaven because of our righteousness, our good works. God's salvation is a gift of grace to be received by faith. Now, if you're already a Christian, learn to intercede and to pray like Moses. Let this text challenge you and encourage you to pray based on God's redemption, God's promises, God's mercy, and God's name. Come to the throne of grace boldly, persistently, fervently. Pray on behalf of others. Brothers and sisters, let's stand in the gap. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a merciful and gracious God. We thank you for your forgiveness and your faithfulness to your promises and your people and your name. We thank you for this invitation to pray, to intercede. We thank you for the encouragement in your text today that prayer is powerful and that you use it to accomplish your will. God, would you teach us to pray? Give us a renewed eagerness, zeal to pray persistently on behalf of others. And Jesus, we just want to thank you and praise you that you always live to intercede for us. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.